Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. A lot of what white people think is the proper black point of view, especially the white people that you and I know, is a highly educated perspective that it's easy to think is default if you live in the college town slash media atmosphere. But once you get away from that, i.e. once you get into the real world, no. Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Jane Koston, and today we have a really interesting guest. John McWhorter is an academic, a linguist. He writes at The Atlantic, and he's an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. And the reason why I asked him to come on the show is because his viewpoints specifically on race and race relations are, I think, what you might call heterodox or perhaps somewhat controversial. And I thought, what better way to get at what those views are than to talk about it? So we talked about race and we talked about racism and we talked about racial slurs and we talked about the Phantom Menace. And we talked about the contradictions of talking about race and how the language of race impacts the policies and politics of race and racism. And I thought it was a really fascinating conversation. As always, you can email the show at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is John McWhorter. John McWhorter, thank you so much for joining me on The Ezra Klein Show. My pleasure. You think and talk a lot about language. And I think you've done a lot of really interesting writing recently on the language of race and how we talk about race more in the United States specifically. So I wanted to kind of get into just from a language perspective, what do you think is harmful and how Americans or American media or Americans in general are talking about race or configuring it? Now, I'll give you an example on my side. I think it's kind of strange when we, and it happens on a bipartisan basis, to think about the idea of the black community, because it always gives me this mental image that it's like me and LeBron and Alan Keyes all at like one (laughs) giant table having like (laughs) sweet potato pie and arguing. (laughs) But I would just be interested, what do you think? What, how do you think we're talking about race in the wrong ways? Well, I think that a lot of how we talk about race in the wrong ways is 
based on innocent aspects just of how language works, which is that terms tend to lose their moorings from what they originally referred to. And we keep on using the term when really we're talking about something else. But then when we zero in on the subject, we sometimes talk as if the term still meant what it did 25 years ago. And so, for example, if we talk about the value of diversity. So, yes, we should have in our mind that the default human being, when we think about who should participate in activities in America, should not be just a white person. We need to get away from that vanilla concept and we need to learn how to mix it up. You might want to have diversity in, for example, a university class. That makes perfect sense. And that's the kind of thing that, for example, Justice Lewis Powell was referring to when that term took on the meaning that we use for it now in the Backey decision about affirmative action. But then the problem is that the way racial preferences very often are wielded is such that not only is diversity being thought about, but diversity is being accomplished through changing the standards that would apply if we were only talking about whites. Now, sometimes there's an argument for changing the standards. So, for example, if you're talking about socioeconomics and poverty and opportunity, there can be a very coherent argument as to why you might want to change standards in order to allow, say, the diverseness of people of a different class into a body. But when it gets to the point that you talk about changing standards for, for example, talk about what the black community is, for very middle class black students, the idea being that a, you know, a me, for example, doesn't have to make grades as high or have test scores as high as a white version of me out of the idea that I am going to contribute diversity and therefore that's okay. That's a much more fraught argument. And yet it's very easy, given how language slips, to say, well, if you don't agree with this changing of standards, then you're not in favor of diversity, as if we weren't also supposed to think about what sort of diversity we mean and what the strategies are for encouraging it. So that sort of thing worries me. What is affirmative action? Preferring racials for what reason? What is diversity? Or, you know, what is racism. The terms are so slippery that I, this is the test that I always think about. Imagine trying to explain the kinds of conversations that you and I often have to, I always randomly, I think of somebody from Japan, you know, say an exchange student from Japan who you get to know very well. They're, you know, maybe 21 or 22, but they haven't been listening to the way we use these words. You know, their English is good and they want to know, well, what do you mean by inclusion? What do you mean by opportunity? And they have a conception of these things that a very naive person, maybe a child, might have. And you have to explain. It's amazing how difficult it would often be to explain to that person, for example, what we mean by racism versus what somebody meant by prejudice 50 years ago. So that sort of thing. But this is not willful. There are some people who go around saying that – People walk around changing what these terms mean in order to confound the rest of us. No, it's just that language is messy and you wake up one morning 25 years later and you realize that the term you're using doesn't really refer to the facts on the ground the way it used to. So on on those grounds, I'd be interested because something that you've talked about a lot recently is the idea of anti-racism and kind of the third wave of anti-racism. And you had a piece 
entitled The Virtue Signalers Won't Change the World. Third wave anti-racism makes sense and fits into the longer struggle, but it's a dead end. And so first I want to talk about anti-racism, and then I want to get back to the concept of virtue signaling. So first and foremost, when you're talking about third wave anti-racists, of whom are you speaking? Because I, I want to get really specific with, you know, what are the arguments you think that third wave anti-racists are making? And why do you think those arguments are bad? Um, a third wave anti-racist can be of any color these days. And so that's one thing. It's a race neutral concept. And what they're arguing is that what we should be concerned with in terms of improving humanity primarily should be eliminating racist bias in all of its forms. And I don't think anybody would have disagreed that you wanted to get rid of racist bias, say, 40 years ago. It's kind of pushing it, 50 or 60. But there was an awareness starting in the 70s that racism was not just burning a cross on somebody's lawn or calling them a bad name, and that you wanted to make people examine you know, the, the inner racist inside of them. That was something that was important. And black people had a responsibility to help white people do it. I watched my mother do it. She taught a course called, I think, Literally Racism 101 in her social work program at Temple University. And I understand the impulse. But I think there's been a mission creep lately where it's a matter of trying to exterminate racism even in the face of empiricism sometimes, and not only in terms of whether the racism exists, but in terms of whether anybody's being helped. And that's an important point in the face of empiricism, in the face of an argument that you could actually make coherently to say that that immigrant recently from Japan. And also, regardless of whether it's really a matter of fostering justice for, for example, poor black people, it's become a way of indicating that you're a good person. And in the same way as language drifts, it's not that anybody's doing this on purpose. It's not that it's something cynical, but it's just gotten to the point that you spray for racism, so to speak, as part of showing that you're good in the same way that somebody 500 years ago in Europe was showing that they had faith. And the thing is, it ends up retarding in many ways and obscuring what it is to actually get justice for people who need it. I think we've pulled away from what the goals of the forefathers were. So you've made the argument that anti-racism is itself a religion of sorts. And one of the things, the points with that, though, is that we can assume that religion is based on a sense of faith. You know, for instance, I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and was resurrected. I believe that. I would argue that anti-racism is not a faith because it is based on evidence. The idea of where racism shows up for many people, specifically poor African-Americans and poor non-white people, it shows up in everyday life. For instance, the Department of Justice findings in Ferguson and in elsewhere and in term, you know, just in terms of job place discrimination in other places. So it's not necessarily that anti-racists believe racism exists and that racism could should be confronted. It's that anti-racists acknowledge that racism exists. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? And how, how would you oh, respond course. to that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, it, it, I think you might be misunderstanding what I mean. The issue is not whether racism exists and the issue is not whether racism has effects. I fully appreciate and accept and understand that. The problem is where the anti-racism ends up requiring faith in the sense of requiring that we suspend our disbelief 
and not ask too many questions. And what I mean by that is, for example, suppose you say, well, okay, yeah, the N-word is a terrible thing and people should neither wield it, you know, calling people that, or casually use it, you know, in, in reference to black people. The idea that that's normal has to go. Okay, fine. Now, about 25 years ago, there was a kind of a mission creep where the new idea became, nor is anybody who isn't black supposed to even refer to the word. You're not even supposed to put your mouth around the shapes of the sounds. Can't even refer to it. And it ends up sounding almost like the sort of thing we associate with cultures very different from ours, where there's a taboo, where you learn about it in an anthropology class and you think, well, that doesn't necessarily make sense, but that's just the way they do it. And you kind of walk on because we're not of that culture, but it takes on that air. Now, if somebody asks... What kind of black strength is it if you claim that somebody can't even say the N-word even to refer to it? To just utter that sequence of sounds is supposed to leave somebody clutching in the corner, destroyed and thinking about slavery. That's all it takes. Doesn't that indicate a certain kind of delicacy? Is that black strength? Now, there are many answers that you could give. But for many people, there's a, a visceral resistance. There's a rolling of the eyes. There's an idea that, well, you just don't get it. And that get it is what I mean by the faith, because there's an extent to which, as you, I'm sure you know, faith requires getting it. It can't be completely explained beyond a certain point. You say, why do you have faith in this thing that you'll never have concrete evidence of the existence of, etc.? And that's a point where you can't argue with logic anymore. And that ends up happening with race. So very quickly, another example is um, here in New York City, there are a top four public high schools where you have to take a nasty little standardized test to get in. And for the past 20 years or so, black students have not done well on that test. And there have been ever fewer who have gotten into schools like, for example, Stuyvesant. Now, one way of looking at it, and I'm quite sure that this is the way the grand old civil rights leaders of 50 years ago would have looked at it, would have been, is, okay, we're going to teach people in the black community how to get better at that test. We've got to get the word out. We've got to make people realize that there's so many free programs for learning how to you know, rehearse for the test. And we're going to make sure that black people can show what they're made of on that test because black people certainly can. That made perfect sense 50 years ago. And frankly, it makes perfect sense now. But the woke way of looking at it these days is to say, well, if black people don't do well on the test, it must be racist. Now, if you try to specify how, now, yes, 30, 40 years ago, you could find tests like that that ask questions about wine and skiing. But that hasn't been the case since roughly early in the Reagan administration. And so you say, again, how is the test racist? And then there's some people, sort of Afrocentric types, who will say, well, there's a different black kind of learning. People have literally said, people with PhDs, you can't expect black children to be that precise. There are people who say openly, you know, two interviewers, well, black people just aren't good at math and they're black. That's the sort of thing you get. And I think, you know, both you and I are kind of rolling our eyes at that. So that won't work. So, okay, how's the test racist? Well, simply in that black people don't do as well on it. That means that the test is a bigot, that it's inappropriate to give black kids that test because they're not as good at it. What do you mean? You're not supposed to ask. Already to many people, my having pushed it that far makes me an aging, you know, kind of martinet who doesn't get it. But what don't I get? But instead, Mayor de Blasio, you know, who's married to a black person and has a black son, actually decides that what we need to do is just pull the test. Why? For inclusion, so that black people are included. These are really weird arguments. Now, I'm not saying that they're crazy. 
I'm not saying that a person might not sit down and make the case, but notice how seldom anybody even tries. We just throw these words around. That's faith. The idea that the test is racist because black people don't do as well at it. And so to show what we're made of, to show that we're good people, what we're going to do is make sure that the black kids don't have to take the test. That's a very modern kind of anti-racism. And I think it's harmful because, for example, that means that legions of black kids in New York City will not learn the arbitrary but necessary knack of sitting down and taking that kind of test in order to get ahead to the sorts of opportunities that give people the money and the horizons that you desire an adult to have. So it's that sort of thing. I'm not saying that racism doesn't exist. I'm not saying it doesn't have effects. I know it where I see it. But the issue is how we're addressing it lately, and it's become more subjective than objective. So it's interesting talking about um, education, and I, I'm, I, I think my biggest question is, how much is this? And I notice this, you know, I write predominantly about conservatism, and I know this is happening a lot on the right, but I see it on the left as well. How much is this, and I'll be blunt here, how much is this white people talking around black people? Because it seems to me that part of this is with the implication that the people generally making some of these arguments who have absorbed how you termed it, woke arguments are white people who believe that they're doing this in a sense to benefit black people, but without having conversed with black people in the first place. Because when you brought up the point about African-Americans and taking tests, I was thinking of my own experiences. Like, I'm a really good test taker. It's one of my few skills. But it's interesting to see how, how much of this, in your view, is kind of white people talking to other white people about black people without talking to black people. Oh, quite a lot. (laughs) And there are all sorts of places you could take that. But what strikes me is that, um, you know, I used to have more of a reputation than I think I do now as a black thinker who has views that aren't representative of the way black people think. You know, the idea is that I'm this weird outlier who, you know, gets, you know, paid for saying these things that white people like to hear. But, you know, it's, it's been about 20 years for me at this point. And I realized that Very often, about four out of five of the things that I write about that are taken as me being different are things where with, frankly, most black people that I know, and I have, you know, a black family with all levels of education. I live in New York, walking around, sitting in the subway. Most black people I know would get what I meant, meaning that, you know, it's not that I've got any kind of genius. I'm just saying what a person walking around in the world who wants to be taken seriously thinks. A lot of what white people think is the proper black point of view, especially the white people that you and I know, is a highly educated perspective that it's easy to think is default if you live in the college town slash media atmosphere. But once you get away from that, i.e. once you get into the real world, no. And so I can, you know, be at a family get together and talk about something that I think. And, you know, maybe one person will disagree, but they won't think of me as the devil. And a lot of people say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And that would include this business about Stuyvesant and admissions. You know, I think a great many black people feel demeaned by that idea that if black kids aren't good at it, then you take the test away. And everybody in New York thinks the reason they got rid of the test is because black people weren't smart enough to do it. No, that nobody wants. That's not how anybody thinks of themselves as being a, a woke black person. But there's this sense that you get from having maybe a little too much education that you're supposed to think in what is really. And when I say it's not crazy, what I mean is it's not crazy. It is a radical leftist 
point of view, leftists as in really desiring to blow up the system, not literally, and start all over again. That is a respectable political view, but frankly, it's also fringe. It tends to be fringe for a reason because human beings are inherently conservative with a little c. Most people don't want to blow everything up and start again. And so that's part of the problem, yes. A lot of the way most of the people we are going to talk about this sort of thing think, who are white, is really very rarefied. And it can be surprising when you actually get around to see how little it has to do with the way often most black people think who don't write editorials. And that worries me quite a bit. So how much, though, do you think that that is reflective of personal and kind of community-wide resignation to the existence of racism? And I think this has been uh, – there's a new book coming out about Clarence Thomas written by Corey Rubin who basically makes the point that Clarence Thomas's arguments and ideas make sense as someone who was a black nationalist and who basically has come to the view that like America is determined to be racist in some sense and thus black Americans just have to kind of deal with that. And so, you know, I always think about um, my experience with my late grandmother, who the Klan burned down her family home in the 20s, and she lived to see Obama's uh, inauguration. But I remember going home for that Thanksgiving and her sitting looking kind of depressed because we were talking about the inauguration parade. And my mom, who was white, was you know very excited about this. My dad seemed pretty excited, too. And my grandma just says, they'll never let him get there. Like, she was convinced that he was going to be shot on the parade route. I remember that. And you could not shake her of that. For her, that made an entire amount of sense. When you are born in the mid-1920s and you're an African-American who was born in rural Georgia, her understanding of this is that they will never let us win and they will never let us succeed and it's never going to happen. So I'm curious as to how much of, in your view... Because I think that you know, there's been a lot of polling that African Americans um, tend to be more small C conservative, no matter how they wind up voting. But how much of that is a sense of kind of just being resigned to the idea that racism will continue to have an overarching impact on the lived experiences of perhaps not the highest echelon of African Americans? So one could make that argument also, but on just Black life in general. Jane, that's an interesting way of putting it. Resigned. The way I see it is that if a black person feels that there will always be some racism, and the idea is not to be resigned to its effects, but resigned to the fact that humanity is imperfect and it's going to stay that way. And if the idea is there will always be something of a battle, but we're up for it and we can handle ourselves, then to be honest, I don't see anything wrong with that because Reverend King didn't see anything wrong with that. The kind of idealism, the idea that we really are going to have a society absolutely free of racism. And notice this. If I say that, many people say, well, who said that? But of course, the way we think about it these days where we end up censuring people for even the slightest degrees of it says that the idea is we're trying to have this world. That is what I mean by this kind of radical highly idealistic thinking. And there's room for it, but it's very hard to make that kind of thinking into a political program. And to the extent that people on one hand are thinking about this great day when America, quote unquote, comes to terms with racism, and then on the other hand, resists someone like me saying, why are you waiting for all racism to go away? Those two points cancel each other out. There's an anti-empiricism and that, to backtrack, is what I mean by the anti-racism where you're not supposed to make sense as much as just keep on spraying for the racism. But yeah, I'm resigned, put it that way. There will always be 
that kind of bias because we're probably hardwired for it. But the question is whether we can do anything about it. And I don't think that the best we can do is that a few black people work on Wall Street. I mean, we've already done much better than that. And it's interesting. Obama, I remember, you know, think about 06, 07. It was clear to me, and I'm not a political prognosticator, but by 2007, I realized, wait a minute, he could actually win just based on all the signs that seem to be there that you would assume were creating a great atmosphere for a white candidate. I thought this is actually beginning to work, especially when it became clear that the Republicans didn't have anything better than John McCain at that time. I thought we're actually going to have a black president. And I don't remember how many times I was told I was a complete idiot. Most of the time by woke white people who seem to think of it as a responsibility to say that they just couldn't imagine it happening up until 10 seconds before it finally did up until literally seconds before it was clear on TV that we were going to have a black president. And I don't have any kind of crystal ball, but I think that we have gotten further than the way things were with, for example, your grandmother. There's reason to think that we can chip away at it, but it's never going to be gone completely. And I don't think we need it to. I always feel this is a genuine feeling. This is not some kind of logical jujitsu. For me to really walk around itching too much about how the white people walking down the street feel about me and other black people in their heart of hearts is weak. Why do I care so much when I'm trying to lead my life? If somebody looks down on me a little bit and they shouldn't, frankly, why should I care? And no, that's not something that I'm saying only because I happen to be a college professor with a couple of other relatively high-profile careers. I would feel that way if I delivered mail. It's just that human beings minimize things like that, usually on purpose in order to cope and enjoy their 80 years on Earth. I think all of us need to do more of that. Yeah, there'll always be some racism. And to the extent that you can see the racism, that makes the person smaller than you. And what's for dinner? And the idea that what I just said is a conservative point? No, no, it's it's not that I'm conservative. It's that our sense of what makes sense on race shifted profoundly sometime around 1972, and we're stuck with the results. So I would push back on that a little bit. You write about kind of anti-racism as religion with kind of this idea of an internal change taking place and an ultimate day of judgment at which we come to terms with everything. But when we think about, for instance, the fight against anti-Semitism or the fight against um, homophobia or other forms of hate, the argument is not that people will stop being internally racist because I am certain that there are people who are whose internal racism still exists. The idea, I think, would be that the internal racism then turns into external racism. And that, you know, when we're thinking about, for instance, um, the marriage equality fight, you would encounter people who would say, you know, when I was working at the human rights campaign many moons ago, occasionally you'd encounter people who would voice a lot of concern about same-sex marriage, but be very clear like, oh, no, 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 this is not how I feel inside. I just think that, you know, these are how these other people kind of externalizing their own hate in some ways onto kind of an external audience in a sense. In some ways, there is an argument here that should we attempt to make it anathema to be externally racist? And I think that that, in a sense, is what people are trying to do and to make it clear that it's not so much that things that were racist in 1972 or things that were not racist in 1972 
Not so much that those have changed, but that we have the time to talk about them now. Because, you know, I always think about people who are like, well, you know, people weren't saying that saying this thing was racist in 1965. And I'm like, yeah, because people were working on some other things like voting and, you know, some other important issues. And so, you know, how would you respond to that? Well, the question starts to become, and I don't mean to sound dismissive, but how important are the things we're talking about? And of course, there's voting, and let's you know say this, so 1965, and you've got that more or less. We've seen that it's more complicated right. than that, but you know we work on that. Then you work on housing. That was just as important. I'm not sure why the Fair Housing Act of 68 has never gotten quite as much press as it the absolutely Act. should. Yeah, that's housing huge. discrimination is a, was an abject scourge, as was redlining. Yeah, that really had a lot to do with today, as Mr. Coates has you know made clearer than used to be to to many people. Right. So then you you get past that, and that's when things get complicated because those things were relatively concrete. You know, now, once you've gotten past that kind of someone standing at the door, the question is, what do you deal with then? And so in a lot of the 70s and into the 80s, the new idea was it's not only about people standing in front of the door. How do you feel? And that was important, too. I grew up, you know, this, I kind of iconicized the 70s because it's what I grew up in. But I think it actually happened to be an important time on race in America in that, you know, my mother was teaching me all sorts of ways that you could see racism operating where it wasn't obvious. You know, why did that kid in school X instead of Y? If you think about it, the only reason is because of your skin color or that other person's skin color. And, you know, 95 times out of 100, she was she was correct. You needed to see those things. But does there come a point at which we're afraid to admit Victory? Does there come a point at which we feel that we're supposed to find those things even when they're not there? I'm going to take something utterly random. I don't know how this is going to make people feel, but it's the one that I'm thinking of. And I remember thinking about this at the time. Blake Lively is um, a white, blonde actress somewhere under 37, I assume. And she does a tweet, I think it was about four or five years ago, where she said, Look at me. And there's a picture of her. I have a something. And she mentioned some part of her body. I forget which one. And an Oakland booty. I'm happy. And I guess she was referring to, you know, whatever her endowment back there happens to be. So she got in big trouble for about two days because that was seen as racist. Why? She was just making a little joke. And if I may be so bold, it is not against empirical statistical tendencies to suppose that genetics are such that black people often, more than white people, might have a certain endowment back there. It's a very innocent tendency. Not everybody, but there, there's something. She said it for a reason, and everybody knows it, especially black people. Why was that a racist thing for that poor woman to say? And it passed, but that's the sort of thing where, I mean, people are on Twitter looking for it. And holding that innocent person up over the flames for a few days as if that comment made her a bigot rather than making a little joke. Couldn't people have just left her alone? And I don't mean that that was some iconic event, but I think you and I both know that that was similar to a great many things that happen practically every day at this point. I'm not sure what that kind of anti-racism is for, because all it does is, I think, teach non-black people that we are extremely oversensitive and lack a sense of humor, don't understand what wit is. And that strikes me as rather counterproductive in all sorts of ways. Well, I think the key words there are on Twitter. I'm on Twitter a lot, and I'm making me a 
tremendous hypocrite on this very point. But you know, the vast majority of people are not on Twitter, mercifully. So I think that there's a sense, and I, I want to go back to kind of the idea of kind of individual psychological racism. And I think your point is that when do we admit victory? When do we kind of move past? So I, I would say that, you know, for a lot of people who got involved in, say, the Black Lives Matter movement, they are very focused on the same sorts of structural reforms that you've brought up. For instance, ending the war on drugs, um, thinking more about criminal justice reform, especially, um, I, you know, I think that both from the police and courts angle and from prisons and jails angle. So I feel like there is a sense in which people who are thinking a lot about individual psychological racism and kind of that internalized racism are also thinking about and what's left to do. What, you know, we like the Fair Housing Act was a tremendous achievement, but we have not gotten to the promised land of fair housing, shall nowhere, we say. Nowhere near, no. And what we learned in a lot of ways in terms of talking about policing and the structural reforms, I think it's important to note also that well, a lot of times when people talk about police brutality, there's this idea that like, it's just about black people when ending police brutality benefits everyone. It benefits Daniel Shaver, who was murdered by police and was white. It benefits a whole host of white Americans and others who have been murdered by police and who then benefit from qualified immunity and a host of other things in order to, in a sense, get away with it. So outside of Twitter, how do you view that the current efforts that are happening right now to conquer structural racism? Because that doesn't seem to me to be about attempting to show other people that you're not racist. That seems to be a genuine anti-racism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I have always said that the issue of particularly black men, not always men, but usually black men and the cops is a key issue. And I have been impatient with other black, what you might call heterodox thinkers, who seem to think that that can be poo-pooed because it's it's absolutely critical. But you know, Jane, to be honest, this is, and maybe I don't get around as much as I used to, you said Daniel Shaver. I have never heard another person in the media say that white person's name until now who wasn't me. Now, that means I haven't. That doesn't mean it hasn't been said. People are going to you know, dredge up all these radio interviews. But I mean, I, and I do kind of listen around, Never heard that name said. There's a list of Daniel Shavers. I have right. memorized. And I, I I have mentioned this here and there. You can find it online, and I'm going to keep mentioning them. You're the first time I've ever heard anybody say his name. And that is a major point because we're not told that it's not only black men of a certain demographic who end up being killed unjustifiably by the police. We're not told. And it's not because there's some grand Mr. Burns conspiracy. It's not because of some leftist hegemony, but it's just the media has the stories that they want to tell. We don't hear that there's a white equivalent to almost every tragically famous case of a black person who was killed by the cops. It just doesn't, it doesn't make the news beyond the local community for a night or two. And so I think that that the whole problem tends to be mischaracterized to an extent, which is not something I knew until about three years ago. But more to the point, no, there does need to be a repair in that relationship. But here's a hypothetical. This is again what I mean to keep this thematic about anti-racism. Let's just wipe the slate clean and imagine an alternate universe. Young, charismatic black activists go into inner city black communities and initiate working with police forces in order to lower the number of black on black. And yes, I did use the term black on black homicides. 
Because, of course, most black people are more in danger of being killed by those, you know, the black men who get killed by white cops. They were in more danger of being killed by somebody who they knew from their community than by that random, undertrained, or even bigoted white cop who ended up being the one who ended their life. That's a really serious problem. It is. And in, in general, that's the intra-community murder rates tend to that, that tends to happen more often. White people kill white people and black people kill black people. Exactly. In general. But but this is the thing. There are not very many white communities at this point where young white men are killing one another at the rates that you have that happening in black communities. So yes, most homicides are, you know, somebody of the other color, but there is something that's going on in black inner city communities, not because it's anybody's fault. You know, there's a whole history. It's partly about gun control. It's partly about the drug war. It's not that these people are, you know, reprobates or pathological, but it's there. And I have said about Black Lives Matter, great to work on the issue of the rogue white cops. And apparently it's having an effect, you know, especially the local branches, not the national branch, but you can't only look at that. It apparently is having effects. And I hope that that's true in more places than I've heard about. But to say, well, what about the other people, other kinds of murders in the same communities? Couldn't you work on that, especially since you have kind of a head start since you were the same color as the people? And I tried to get that across in the media about four years ago and found that, you know, nobody wanted to hear or even publish that. And I was considered a real jerk for even bringing it up. That's what I mean in that we think we have to go after what is or might be the product of racism rather than the other homicides, even though they're more common, where you can't say that it's about racism. That's a decision where if you roll the tape back and then start it again, I'm not sure that it would come out the way it has now. And I say this with concern for the black men in those communities. It has nothing to do with me. I don't live there. But it's just if we were really concerned with them, it wouldn't be considered out of court to say, well, what about the intra-community homicides and trying to do something about them beyond what the cops seem to be doing? We're going to take a quick break. And then when we get back, we're going to talk about virtue signaling. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. So 
Your Atlantic piece uh, from last December was entitled The Virtue Signalers Won't Change the World. And I've written on the idea of virtue signaling, which is appears to be the basic implication. And there was a British conservative writer, James Bartholomew, who was, I think, the, one of the first to be credited with using this term um, in The Spectator in April 2015, which is basically the idea that moral outrage generally online is done for posturing to show that you want to be seen as the right kind of person by caring about the right kinds of things. The issue is, isn't it kind of good to signal that you are the right kind of person or like the right kind of things? Because I think what we're starting to see now, and it's it's beginning to happen on an increasingly bipartisan basis, is something, you know, I like vice signaling, where it's basically being like the biggest jerk you can be to show that, you know, you're not PC, you're <laughs> tough, like you don't <laughs> care, you're going to say these unpopular yeah, things. there is that. Yeah. Ooh, you're triggered now. So, you know, the implications of virtue signaling are that one, it is somehow bad to signal virtue or the idea of a common morality, but also that if you're virtue signaling, you are not actually virtuous. You do not actually care about the thing you say you care about. You know, when Cory Booker tweeted something about um, LGBT rights, someone responded of like, you know, voters care about job security, family retirement, not bathrooms, gay marriage, virtue signaling, climate and transgender, which, you know, the implication of just being that like, People who allegedly care about LGBT people or the climate don't really care. They're just doing it to appear as if they do. Yes, a person may virtue signal and, you know, they probably do really, you know, believe in what they're trying to show. And it doesn't mean that they're not out there trying to actually do real things, although often it doesn't. But, you know, we can't all be out there doing real things. But my problem with virtue signaling is where the signaling is more important than the common sense or the efficacy. And so, you know, once again, you can virtue signal by saying, oh, yeah, got to get rid of the test. Oh, no, no, that test is racist. No, get rid of it. Why should they take that test? Somebody says. But then if the kids aren't taking the test, everybody thinks that black kids are stupid and black kids don't get the practice in taking the kinds of tests that, for example, get you into good colleges, that get you into law school, etc. So the person is signaling their virtue and they take their sip of Chardonnay, but really they're not thinking through that the decision that they're espousing is going to hurt the people that they're talking about. That's the bad kind, or even this, and this is more subjective. This is, you know, opinions will differ. Yours might differ from mine. So it's the summer of 1998. And I believe that that was when, maybe nine, The Phantom Menace comes out. And I was at this party and there weren't very many people there yet. So you could hear everything anybody was saying. And the movie came out and I don't think anybody was noticing me. I don't think the person did it for me. I was the one black person in the room. But with the way the blocking went, I don't know if this guy noticed me. At this point, I had no media presence or anything. So he wouldn't have known you know, who I was. He wouldn't have been performing for somebody he thought of as a writer. He's just talking to all of his very white Bay Area friends. And somebody said, so how is the Phantom Menace? And he said, oh, well, yeah, it was pretty good. But uh, the, the voice of this, this Jar Jar Binks character, uh, he's, it's Jamaican and like it's, it's kind of racist, man. So, I don't know. Yeah. And that was all he said about that entire epic movie. Jane, I don't believe it. I don't believe that that was all he got out of that film. I think that he was showing these, the term wasn't being used yet, but these woke educated, white, Bay Area sweeties. And I think part of it was because a lot of the women in the room were good looking. He was showing that he was woke, that he's down with the whole racism thing. 
That isn't all he got out of that film. He was lying. He was performing. Now, did that hurt anything? No, I frankly. But me standing there listening to it, or even if I had been a fly on the wall and I hadn't actually been in the room, I think that's a very fake kind of discourse. And I feel almost exploited. It's like, I'm going to show that I'm down with the black thing by pretending that all I noticed about this massive epic of a movie was this one questionably correct voice casting. It's icky. But more to the point, something like saying that you discontinue the test at Stuyvesant when you don't realize you're hurting black kids by espousing it. The Phantom Menace was a terrible movie. You know, I never saw it. <laughs> it's a really, really bad movie. I, I cannot tell you enough. It being, I, I saw it when I was in sixth grade, and I think it may be, to this day, one of the great disappointments of my life. But anyway. Could you tell me if, if, for 15 seconds what was so bad about it? Um, the acting is awful, and the writing is bad because they let George Lucas write it, be, and that's a very bad idea because George Lucas is a terrible writer, which is why <laughs> Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie because he wasn't in charge of writing it. <laughs> Irv Kirshner was. I didn't Irv know Irv Kirshner that. could write. George Lucas could not write. So that's George why the second one was the best one. Yes. Yeah. This is why Empire Strikes Back is good. This is why Return of the Jedi is good. And this is why the first A, A New Hope is it's good. Because it's important, but there are definitely moments where you're like, George Lucas, somebody should have just like slowly moved you out of the room. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway. Um, so I actually, I think it's important, you know, we've been talking a lot about definitions. And can we talk about a definition of racism? Because I think that there's an idea of racism as being kind of this internal sentiment. You made the point earlier that you know it when you see it and the kind of the Justice Potter argument. But- you know, I think uh, Ibram Kendi has argued that racism is basically like, do you support racist policies? And you know, that's why, you know, when people are like, I don't have a racist bone in my body, but you still advocate for race things that will have a racist impact on people or are racist themselves, that's still being racist. What do you think? That sort of view, I get where it's coming from, but I think for me, it is infelicitously simplistic, honestly. And so, for example, disparate outcomes are not always due to disparate opportunity. Disparate outcomes are not always due to racism. They're not always due to discrimination. And that's a hard thing. That is a problem that has bedeviled the way we talk about racism since about 1972. But deciding, you know, what is a racist policy can be really tough. So once again, you know, the you know, black kids don't do as well on a certain kind of test is it racist? Is it based on racism of the past that no longer exists and is now aimed at other things, but it leaves a legacy, a concept that a lot of people seem, for some reason, I genuinely don't understand to have a lot of trouble with? These things are complicated. And so, honestly, Kendi's vision of what a racist is, there's a convenience in it in that that allows pretty much nine out of 10 non-Black people to be assigned the category of racist. but. I find that the brush is too broad. Racism is either Archie Bunker, it's, you know, bigotry against people, or racism is subtly seeing other people as lower, as different in some negative way. Some people would say even positive way. I would beg to differ, but still, that's racism. Now, can a society be racist? Structural racism? I have trouble with that term because I think that it makes something seem a lot simpler than it is. And I've written a little bit about it and I'm going to write 
more. I know what people mean by structural racism, but it makes it sound like there's a structure that's being racist, which is, of course, not the point. Or it makes it sound like the structure doesn't work out for certain people because of the sum total of racist biases of various white people walking around not knowing it. And I think that that analysis doesn't work for a lot of the policy problems that we're talking about. It's a very misleading term. Language is misleading. Once again, structural racism is a really fraught way of referring to the sorts of problems and even disparities that we see. So racism exists. It has effects. It is part of being an enlightened person to realize that it isn't just using the N-word, etc. But there comes a point where to the man with a hammer, everything is a nail. And that does not cease to be possible just because someone's talking about something as urgent as racism. I think that the whole concept lends itself to a way of looking at things, which, and this is the problem, not only is it simplistic, but I'm not sure that it's poised to solve any problems. And that's where I get worried. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about politics. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So it's interesting talking about the different definitions of racism because there's been a lot of conversation about the 2016 election, obviously the 2020 election, with regard to the role that racism played or the concept of, quote unquote, economic anxiety. You know, what was your take in 2016 on the role that race was playing in the race? And what do you think now looking back? Um, I don't know that I've changed that much on it. I think the idea that Trump's election was white people getting back at America because they had had to put up with eight years of Obama is oversimplified. You know, it's good drama, but it makes it sound like America is this one person or maybe three. That's not how social psychology works. It is clear from you know, polling and from psychological tests that the kinds of people who are Trump fans are disproportionately ones who have certain racial resentments, who are less what we might call enlightened about the nature of racism. That's certainly true. I find it fraught. The idea that Obama being black stuck in certain people's craw to such an extent that it resulted in the election of this idiot. You could have elected Donald Trump without having spent eight years thinking, what is that monkey doing in the White House, especially given the people who voted for him and then voted for Trump. I think we need to make a careful distinction between fable and the gut and what is actually there. And our pollsters and our analysts aren't always in a position to do that because there's a certain story they often want to tell, including even the best ones. Nevertheless, um, if you are a Trump voter, if you voted for that thing, then it is certainly true that you prioritize racism less than many of us would prefer. But the question is whether that prioritization makes you what we would call 
a racist. And I think that the whole idea that if you don't prioritize racism as much as, say, for example, you or I might, you are a bigot, is an emotional score rather than an analysis. And I think actually Thomas Chatterton Williams is particularly good on this. And I would say that I've had some experience kind of like his. If you've known white people like that, well, you realize how simplistic it is to think that you're a bigot who hated Obama if you voted for Trump. You probably knew Trump was less than perfect. I can't viscerally completely understand how now you could look at how that man's been in office and be ready to pull the lever for him again. Nevertheless, we can't all be in each other's heads. And frankly, most people are only so politically engaged anyway, and they like his style, et cetera. So yeah, race played a role in that if you do have problems about, quote unquote, the blacks, he's certainly going to you know blow a certain whistle. But the idea that that was most of it, you know, nobody thinks it was all of it, but that that was most of it. Good story. I hope somebody makes a movie. You know, Spike Lee would be very good at it. It would be good drama. I think it oversimplifies what actually happened. Life is boring in that way. Social history tends to be really complicated, and we want it to be all about cowboys and Indians. It almost never is. One thing I would challenge you on is the idea that someone would be a bigot or a racist. I think it's it's challenging occasionally because I think you and I have both encountered racist people, but it's not like they woke up at 9 a.m. every day and were like, today is the day I'm going to be super racist all day. And then they went to bed at 9 p.m. and were like, that was a great day of racism. And so bigotry contains a lot of variation and as does racism. You know, I've made the argument that Trump's racism is the kind of racism that would assume that Ben Carson and members of the Congressional Black Caucus already knew each other because, of course, we all know each other. (laughs) And so do you think that when we're thinking not necessarily about saying like, ah, bigot, but the idea that, you know, bigotry can interrelate with other concerns, with other genuine concerns about the economy or about jobs, but also that bigotry can come across not just as like, I hate this monkey president, but this idea of like, there is an order to the way things should work. And the order has been disrupted in a way that I do not like. And, you know, I think about this a lot when people talk about um, polling on race relations, a thing I actually hate because I don't actually know what's being polled. And if you go back to uh, polling on that same question from like 1950, white people are like, yeah, race relations are great. I don't, I don't see a problem here, which, you know, that really gets kind of my questions about what that means. But when we're thinking about Trump and the idea of bigotry and racism as having gradations, how do you think about that? Oh, sure. It, it played a part. <laughs> Call it intersectional. I don't think that's quite how we're supposed to use the term. But, yeah, it, it played a part. But then the question is, did it play enough of a part? to justify the shorthand way we tend to talk about it, which is that racism elected Donald Trump. And that's not a cartoon view. There's one very prominent black columnist I won't name who said, you know, if you voted for Trump, that means that you don't prioritize racism. It means that, you know, it's not at the top of your list or even close and I want nothing to do with you. That's almost the way this person put it. And this is a prominent person in a very high place. And I say, no, no, this is not an Aesop's fable. This is how real life works. And so, yeah, was bigotry part of it? Sure. You know, including the kind of bigotry I've known among some people who, you know, loved me or liked me very much, where if I decided to really probe it over a glass of wine, I could show that there were certain views that they harbored. Some of those people were married to black people. Life isn't perfect. But yeah, it certainly played a part. But the question is how we think of it 
in shorthand and the idea that he was elected by the persistence of racism in the American fabric uh, or, you know, uh, Obama being president. Why not this? He was elected twice and it wasn't even hard either time. Twice. In this nation that we're now being told by our smartest people is just so indelibly racist and bigoted. We had a black president not just once, but twice, and it wasn't even close either time. That matters. That cannot be gainsaid by the idiot who's in the White House now and what color he is and what he thinks of black people. So I want to get back to um, you've used the term woke Um, And I'm really fascinated by this term because I think perhaps for you and I, there is the way that we grew up hearing the word woke, which was generally by people, African-American people, who kind of meant it in a sense of this, um, what I would call kind of righteous paranoia, the idea that they are actually trying to get you. And sometimes it came across of people being like, ah, fluoridated water is how they're trying to get us this time. Or you know, you have to open your third eye and stay woke to how the man is trying to come after you. That, yeah. And then there's been this, you know, this wild transition to where woke is now used. Um, I've spoken with Robbie Suave at Reason numerous times, and he talks about, you know, the kind of the the revenge of the woke on university campuses. And in generally by that, he means simply left-leaning politics. But for how we, you know, how I grew up understanding the term, it had nothing to do with liberalism. It was actually a very, you know, a blinkered sense of conservatism in a way, this idea that like, All white people are at some point going to try and do something sketchy to you and you have to stay woke for it and just keep your third eye open. And occasionally this got into some hotep nonsense. But, you know, that kind of idea. So how have you seen the term woke change? And what what do you think about that? Because I know we've just talked about it. Yeah. (laughs) I hadn't thought about those sorts of things in a while. Your woke was you're at a family party and there's cousin whatever in the corner and he's talking about, you know, what they put into church's chicken or something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, it's always something <laughs> of just like, you know, you got to eat Ital food because otherwise, <laughs> you know, they're going to – you don't know what's in that meat and you, you don't know to, what the government's putting in that meat. Right. You have to wake up and this stuff is real and then a certain kind of person got that book. I heard it on the grapevine and I, I – yeah. I, yeah, that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden it's this new thing that starts – I got it in about 2015, and since I'm stodgy, that means let's date it back to 2013 when it really took off. And really, woke, it's it's pretty simple. Woke replaced politically correct because politically correct got shat all over. I mean, in the 80s and a little bit into the early 90s, you could say with a straight face, well, I want to date somebody who's politically correct and blah, 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 blah. But the right tarred politically correct and made it basically a slur. You're this shrill person who's pushing your knee-jerk liberal views into everybody's faces. So there needed to be a new way of saying that. And woke just kind of slipped in in the middle of the night. And now is the way that you refer to that. And if you notice, it's already taking on the air of quotation marks, of of, of scare quotes. And there's going to have to be some other term. And I'd like to know what the way of saying woke without getting a laugh will be in, say, 2025, because there is always this anger from the other side and it's magnified and has faster effect because of social media. But, yeah, that's that's what it is. You need a term for enlightened liberal slash leftist. And when it comes to racism, leftist and liberal end up being practically the same thing, which I think is dangerous. But 
thought. So that's why woke jumped in. And then also there is the the browning of America culturally, and that's about not only music, but language and dress style and all sorts of things, meaning that you could almost have predicted that the new way of saying politically correct would be something from black speech as opposed to something you know, that somebody white made up somewhere. And so it has that flavor, which makes it attractive because it sounds like you're down with the people who need the most kind of wokish action. And so, yeah, it's been an interesting development, but it's one of those words where the euphemism treadmill is already grinding it under and there's going to have to be something else pretty soon. So I, I want to go back. You just you said that leftist and liberal were becoming markedly the same on the subject of race. Could you explain that? Yeah. John McWhorter is a conservative, his conservative thought. And I'm sitting here thinking in 1960, I would have been thought of as a liberal, not as a conservative. Or, you know, in 1995, I thought I was a liberal and all of a sudden everybody's telling me I'm a Republican. The reason for that is because when it comes to race, enlightened people have been taught to think that the leftist is the default and moral position and that liberalism is just mealy-mouthed and not enough. And of course, there's some of that in left-of-center political ideology all the time. But it's very simple, the idea that, for example, if black kids aren't doing well on the test, get rid of the test. That's radical. You know, you're going to get rid of this kind of testing, which was initiated in order to get past racist views of what intelligence is. You're just going to take it away. That's radical. But we're taught to think that that's normal, that that's the way most people are supposed to think such that the mayor of New York City espouses that kind of view, thinking that he might become president of a nation that is not remotely radical. That's because of this sense that when it comes to race, we're supposed to be very left and very left is norm. So Amiri Baraka is norm. Nobody would have understood that in 1960. All of a sudden in 1970, that started to feel right. Suddenly yelling Black Power and Stokely Carmichael and H. Rat Brown, suddenly that became the Black view. And anybody who was to the right of that, say, you know, being just an old-fashioned liberal, you know, drinking your wine, that's not enough. You're one of the man. And so that's what we're dealing with today. I think anybody who listens to what I actually think and what my concerns are understands that the notion that I'm a right-winger is frankly, it's absurd. It doesn't fit with the facts. It's not just that, that, that it's a slur. It makes no sense, and it didn't make any more sense 20 years ago than it does now. But it's just that we are trained to think that advanced thought on Black people is radical. I'm not sure where that gets us. So one of the points that you've made um, is in terms of remedies to racism or remedies to the impacts of racism, you would argue in favor of kind of race-neutral policies, ending the war on drugs, expanding reproductive rights for the poor, others. Do you think that that is, that race neutrality is necessary to conquer kind of the impacts of racism and racist policies? Huh. Uh, that's interesting. Nobody's ever asked me that. Not deliberately. I wouldn't say that one can never have race targeted policies. It is politically more feasible if at least there is a pretense that it's about poverty rather than race. But for example, if 
I were the mayor of New York City or, you know, were capable of running anything, then the sorts of things that I've listed, such as the war on drugs, such as using phonics to teach kids how to read, such as any number of things that I say, long, long acting um, contraceptives as being free and given to anybody who wants them. I'll openly say I've got black people in mind here. That doesn't mean that white people won't take advantage of it as well. But these are the things that would help the black community. What does it hurt if it's available to others, especially given that underclass is increasing a race-neutral proposition. You and I are sitting here thinking about North Philadelphia and Bed-Stuy, but it's getting to the point where for us to not be thinking about, say, Kentucky and Southern Ohio is getting a little, little arbitrary. You know, there's well, a, especially you know, I'm from Southern Ohio, so oh, it's right. it's always funny when people um, talk about the Midwest. Like when we, even when we're talking about where Black people live. And what impacts black people occasionally? I'm like, you know, I grew up in Cincinnati. Um, I went to Catholic school. I was w- one of very few black people in Catholic school. But, in, you know, that I was there also. And mm-hmm. so I think that that's something about the idea of these policies. It would wind up assisting more black Americans because black Americans live everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that um, King was right. In thinking about poverty near the end of his life rather than it being only about race. But I wouldn't, it's, to be honest, those are the sorts of things that are more likely to get passed. You know, if it were possible to go back to 1965, and it wasn't even like this in 1965, but to have legislation passed that really was very openly about black people, but even then the Great Society wasn't exactly pitched that way, then I'd say fine. But that's the thing. We're supposed to be interested in what can happen. So, you know, this whole debate, this redebating of reparations for slavery, I get the rationale. But the chances of that happening, you know, it's very nice for Kamala Harris and the other and Pete Buttigieg to talk about it, to mention it. And, you know, we can write about how isn't it nice that these people are talking about it. But in terms of actually getting that done, getting that passed, slim, very slim chance, especially with the Republicans the way they are and are going to be in Congress. And so, you know, why not talk about something that can work within roughly a lifetime? So that is part of my sense of things. But nevertheless, In terms of the publicity, I'm quite open in saying that these are things designed to help get us past race in a real way. On the Ezra Klein Show, we like to ask for three book recommendations that shaped your thinking or your ideas in some way. So I'd love to hear what yours might be. You know, a book that I just finished, which is one of the best books about language that I have ever read, and partly because it's not only about language— It is about encounters between Western and non-Western societies and how a language dies. It is a book called A Death in the Rainforest, How a Language and a Way of Life Came to an End in Papua New Guinea. And I would say that this is one of the four or five best books I have read in 2019. So highly recommend it. Another book, which was also the best book that I've read in 2019, is by Casey Sepp, and it's called Furious Hours. It is about Harper Lee's writing of To Kill a Mockingbird, and you may feel like you've heard enough about that. You haven't. This is a book about race. It's about class. There's a murder mystery. Absolutely fascinating. If you have too much time on your hands, you will read it in one sitting. Highly recommended book that's about everything in the world. And you know what? 
I had never gotten around to Philip Ross' American Pastoral until this year, and I was absolutely riveted. It's about being Jewish. It's also about being human. I frankly think that's his best of the ones that I've read. And so I would recommend that. The Roth, the Kulik, and the Sep. Those have been my favorite reading experiences of this calendar year so far. John McWhorter, thank you so much for joining me on The Ezra Klein Show. Thank you, Jane. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to John for joining me. Thank you to Jeffrey Geld, our producer. Thank you to Roger Karma, our researcher. And thank you to all of you for listening. The Ezra Klein Show will return next week. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.